we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and to see what you would have us to learn from, from it, guide and lead us and, and teach us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're in 2 Kings chapter 17. Uh, the first half of this chapter, we talked about the kingdom of Israel falling to Assyria and being taken into captivity. Um, the king moved everybody out of uh, the northern area of Samaria and moved them into other parts of the country and, he, and he's bringing other people into, into Samaria. Uh, as we look here and what's going to happen, we're going to see the foundation of the Samaritan people. Before this, they were the Israelites and later on during Jesus' days, they're going to be the Samaritans that live here. And they're going to be a mixture of the people that were left behind, the handful of people left behind, the new people coming in, and the religion that gets developed out of that whole mixing bowl of activities. And then by the time Jesus is around, the Samaritans are a hated people because they're a half-breed. They've inter you know, but Jews were up there intermixed, intermarried with the people that were sh shipped in, and, and they didn't follow Jesus. You know, they didn't follow biblical uh, Judaism, and so they were a hated, hated group of people. So we're going to see the foundation being laid for that, that group of people in today's study. Starting in verse 24 of chapter 17. And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Gathal and from Ava and from Hamath and from Sepharim and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the city of the children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. And so it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they feared not the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them and slew some of them. Therefore they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations which you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria know not the manner of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and, ha and behold, they slay them, because they know not the manner of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Carried thither one of the priests from whom you brought from thence, and let them go and dwell there, and let them teach them the manner of the God of that land. And one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. So we're going to stop there for just a moment. All right. King of Assyria ships everybody off, and he sends people in from all these different, different lands to dwell in Samaria. And we've talked about this. Actually, it was a very good thing on his part. He takes all the people that live there, that care about the land, moves them all over to places. And where he takes people and puts them in, he takes those people and puts them in there so all your neighbors don't speak the same language. Uh, there's no loyalty to the land, so there's not going to be the uprisings that would have been there if he had left his people there. Uh, and this is the thing that we've seen over many millennia of time. When you leave the people in their land, they have a love for their land and they want to be free again. And eventually they will bind together and rebel at some point. Maybe not right away, but at some point through history, they will rebel and try to take their land back. We've seen it all through the Bible where the Israelites would be plagued by some nation. They'd be left in their land and then they would rebel and take back the property. God would deliver them or they would rebel and they'd take back the property, uh, pro uh, their land. During the Roman uh, occupation of 
Israel, they did not send the people away, and the people were always a, always a headache to the Roman people. They would come in, and they'd fight, and they'd argue the Maccabean re rebellion, the, the rebellion in 70 AD when they finally shipped the people out of Israel because they'd been so, so much trouble. Uh, Hitler had his problem in France because he did not ship the Frenchmen out of France. He left them there, and they were constant rebellion. Holland, all these places that he conquered, he had rebellious people trying to take their land back because it's their home. And we see this over and over. And so king of Assyria says, fine, I'm not even going to deal with it. I'm just going to ship everybody out. <laughs> and they won't want to you know, move them someplace else, and there's not going to be as much rebellion because they're not going to care about where they're at. They might want to go home, but they're not going to care about where they're, they're at. So he ships them away and then moves people into their land. And from this, it gives us this whole list, and it says they, uh, these people from these various countries that I listed off, they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities. So they didn't have to rebuild cities. They were just they shipped off. Everybody lived there and put new people in the cities. And uh, quite an interesting thing. Cause, but even America did that in, with the Indian nations. They, we moved the East Coast Indians to the West Coast, the West Coast Indians to the East Coast. And it did two things. Number one, it made them no longer really caring about their land, broke up their traditions. And in the case of the Indians, we, we, traded, we traded places so that they didn't know how to, you know, to live and were actually trying to destroy, you know, America was trying to exterminate them. You take plain and, and desert-dwelling Indians and put them in a swamp where they don't know anything, you take the swamp Indians and put them where there's no water. You know, the whole purpose was to kill them, all right? Uh, and that often happened. They went into new lands, new places. They didn't know how to live. It caused, caused people to have to worry about how to live, not, not try to raise up a rebellion because you're, you're struggling to live in a terrible place you don't know how to live in. In our day, it's much easier. We just go to the grocery store and buy what we want. Uh, so it really doesn't matter where we go, but in those days, it was a big deal. What do you grow? Right? I've just been moved from the Middle East up to, to the middle of Turkey. You probably don't grow the same things in, in those two places. All right? So there's going to be how to grow, what to grow, so you're, you're struggling to survive. And it was a way to control his population from rebelling against him. Um, and it says in verse 25, And so it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they feared not the Lord. They did not follow God, in other words. And they're in the land that God gave his people. And God has said, this is my land. You know, he owns all the world, but he has really placed himself in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, that whole area that is Israel's land. He says, this is my home. They put people in there that weren't obeying him. And, God's, and it says, God sent lions in to kill them. Now, I don't know what made them think that these, you know, these lions were an attack from God. There had to be multiple lions. There wasn't just one stray lion. Um, and there's no, nothing here to tell us, but they recognized that this wasn't just normal attacks by lions. All right? Maybe they came right into the middle of the city. You know, lions don't come into the middle of the city. Maybe there were lions, all, whole packs coming into the cities and, and tearing people up. We don't know what made this, but they recognized that this was unusual. This was a supernatural attack by lions. And people recognized this was from their God. The God of this land is sending these in there. There must have been some prophets, somebody that spoke and said this, supernatural. And it's kind of interesting, there's times in our lives when we know that God is doing something. If we're, especially if we're attuned to him at all, then we go, 
This was God. This is, some, this is what God has allowed. Maybe it's something as simple of as you're starting to serve God and the attacks come. <laughs> and you're going, okay, God, I, help me get through these attacks. These people recognized that lions were the problem. And I have to imagine this wasn't just one or two lions wandering the area. I think this was packs of lions showing up in a place where, you know, and probably literally showing up in the towns, which was not something lions did. You were afraid of lions outside the town maybe, but not in your towns, in your villages, where, where people were, lions tended to stay away from. So we're having these lions in a, and attacking in a way that people are recognizing this is something different. This is not the normal activity. This is not normal. And they sent a message to the king of Assyria. <laughs> and their message was kind of simple. He goes, uh, the nations which you have removed and placed in the, in the cities know not the manner of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them. And behold, they, they slay them because they know not the manner of the God of, of the land. In other words, they're going to the God of this land. Okay, remember, these are... These are uh, polytheistic people they believe in lots of gods so they believe there's lots of gods and they know that there's a god over various lands and the Jewish God has been a famous God all right people still remember the destruction of, of Egypt they remember the crossing of the of the Red Sea they remember the crossing of the of the Jordan they remember the the battles where they just annihilated nation after nation now God has let them be conquered, but they still remember that God is powerful. He has a reputation in that, in that area. And, you know, I wish that we had God moving in such a way that people recognize that God has a reputation, outside of just us Christians, but these people knew the stories. And if you remember, when they came across the Jordan River, what did Rahab say to them? You know, we're, they were afraid of the people, and Rahab said, we're so afraid of you, you guys... We still tell the stories about what God did to Egypt and how he split the Red Sea. And now we've watched him split the Jordan at flood stage. We know that you serve a powerful God and we are fearful. Uh, Gideon, when he makes his attack, God says, Gideon, if you're afraid, go down and, and listen to what the Midianites are saying about you. And he goes down and he hears them talk about a dream that they show, said and that, they, that Gideon was sure to defeat <laughs> To defeat them and he goes back all all brave now okay god you're right you're going to give them into my hands they're, they're already afraid over and over do we really have the attitude that god is in charge and will win yeah and this is something that we say we believe but do we truly believe it when we're facing the trials and tribulations when we're facing hard times, do we go back and say, God, I know that you're still God that does miracles. I know. These non-believers believed it more than the Israelites did. <laughs> you know, the Israelites never bent their hearts to, the, to their God, and these guys are going to the king and saying, uh, this God is causing trouble. The God of this land is causing trouble for us. You know, uh, king, you're losing lots of citizens every, every week, day, month, whatever period of time they're talking about. These lions are in here killing our people. You know, and you tell the king you're, you're, losing, you're losing citizens, you're losing taxes, the king acts. All right? And this king decides that his answer to figuring this out, because they say we don't, they don't understand the manner of their God. What, what does he ask for? What does he worship? And you think about this polytheism. You have certain gods that demand different things. 
You've got the god of gods and goddesses of fertility. You worship them through sex. You have the gods of, of power and approbation. You worship them by giving up something very, very important to you, usually your firstborn son. There are all kinds of different ways to worship gods, and they're going, we don't know how to worship this god. We don't know what he expects. And they're probably saying, we've, we've, we've made altars, we've made, we've made sacrifices, and nothing we're doing is getting these lions out of our area. And matter of fact, they're getting worse. King, what are we going to do? And the king's answer, you know, in verse 27, the king of Assyria commanded, get one of the priests from that land and send him back. All right? Take one of the priests from that land and send him back so he can teach the people how to worship the God of that land. Now, again, they're still thinking polytheistic. All right, we, we just need to appease this God. We'll keep worshiping our gods, but we need to know, we know, we need to know what gifts, what to, what to do to make this God happy with us. You know, he seems to be powerful. He's killing us, but we're going to keep worshiping our God, but we're going to try to include him. Again, none of this makes sense to me. If you've got a God who's stronger than your gods, why would you keep worshiping your gods? And yet, this is what happens all through. And even the Israelites defeat countries, worship their God, even though they know that God is the one that tells them that they're going to have victory. It's just a kind of a bizarre thing to me, but I don't understand polytheism all that well, you know, the, the concept of polytheism anyway. But, you know, you would think that if you're admitting that their God is stronger than yours, why would you even not worship that God? And for them, they're just going to add him to their pantheon. And we're going to see, they're going to, he's just going to be added to the other gods. All right? They didn't convert. They kind of try to mix the two together, which is the problem with the Samaritans in Jesus' day. They were theoretically Jews, but they had added so many other practices and rules and, and sacrifices and stuff. They were more Jew than non, than not Jew, but they weren't Jew. They, they were mixing things. And unfortunately, lots of Christians do the same thing. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we get saved by grace, and then we start trying to figure out how do we earn our salvation? Or how do I keep my salvation? Somehow the Christians get to a place where they think that somehow I, earn, I got it by grace, but somehow I've got to keep it. I've got to go out and earn the long-term following of my salvation. And I can just picture Jesus moaning, I paid your debt. Just let me dwell in you and change who you are and change your reason for wanting to serve. And yet, there's so many people that try to earn what they couldn't get in the first place. And, you know, this is, it, heart, it breaks my heart when I see people do it, and it breaks my heart when I find myself trying to fall into that place. God, how can I be falling into this idea of trying to earn what I can't, can't deserve, what I didn't deserve and what I can't keep? And that's the important thing for us to understand. We didn't deserve it in the first place, and we can do nothing to keep it. We just allow God to change us. That's a hard concept. And I'll tell you right now, there are a lot of pastors that are afraid to teach that because they're afraid that their people will go crazy and sin because they're don't, not putting rules and bounds on them. But you know what? If you can sin without having any conviction in your life, you don't know Jesus in the first place. When I sin, I know that I'm convicted, and he tells me that, that if I think about sinning, he's convicting me about, about what I'm thinking about doing. There's no way I can just go out and sin just to get more grace. It doesn't make any sense. You know, it doesn't make any sense to do that when you're his. 
Now, otherwise, if you're not his, it's like, well, okay, I got it by grace. I, I'll just have, I can do whatever I want, and grace covers it. And unfortunately, we've all met Christians that think that way as well. Uh, but, you know, and they're terrible examples of trying to be a Christian because it's like, well, I, I'm under grace. God will cover everything I do. Well, yes, that is true. If you truly are his, his grace will cover anything you do. You're losing out rewards and you're losing out fellowship. But you can't go into that with that mindset and be his. That would be like saying, well, you know, mom and dad, I really love you, but I'm going to do everything I can to make your family, this family name miserable. Now, now, I know people do that, but that's usually not what they're trying to do. They're trying to find themselves or whatever. But if they really love their family, they love their parents, they're not out there trying to make their family name miserable and, and bad. They're trying to do things to honor the name. Uh, don't always do a good job at it. but <laughs> And that's what we are in the family of God. Our desire should be that we love God so much that we are just wanting to bring honor to his name not because he's going to love us more, because he won't. Not because we're going to earn our, have our place in heaven, because we won't. But just because we love him. And we reach out and say, God, I, want to, I, would just, want to, I just want to serve you just for the sake of honoring you. And these people are saying, so he sends this priest to teach them the manner of the God of that land. So he sends a priest. Now, I don't know exactly how good this priest would have been because remember, the reason they're in captivity is because they haven't been following God in the first place. All right? So hopefully he sent them a priest that actually knew something and knew how to follow God. Uh, he didn't pick one of the priests of Baal or Astaroth. He picked, took a priest of God. And it seems that he did from the context of this. And this priest moved into the city of Bethel and it says, and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Probably taught them the Ten Commandments and the other commandments of the Lord. How to, how to do sacrifices, how, you know, the sacrifices that their God demanded. What was clean, what was unclean, what they were supposed to eat, what they weren't supposed to eat. Uh, probably drove the people crazy because all of a sudden they had all these rules to follow that they knew nothing about. But they want to keep, they're motivated because they want to keep the lions away. <laughs> So they're a little motivated to follow these rules, hoping that it's going to work to keep the lions away. Uh, but, you know, we're very interesting because to follow the Judaic rules is quite a challenge. You know, the Jewish rabbis tell us there are 613 Jewish rules in the Bible. That does not even count all the extra rules that they have put on top of God's rules. Uh, They've got an entire book. I went to a Jewish synagogue one time. There's an entire book on what you can and can't do basically in all of your life. All right? When the sun goes down on Friday night, you cannot open a cabinet if it's not already open. You cannot open a bottle of soda. You cannot open a can of soda. You cannot start a fire. You cannot start. You cannot turn a light on because that is working. It's making the, the light switch work. Do you think they still do that? Yes. The ones who are Orthodox. The Orthodox and most of the Reformed, the ones at the bottom level, no, they don't follow it that close. Uh, you go to Israel, and on the Sabbath day, their elevators are set to stop at every single floor so you don't have to push a button to make the, but to make it, to make the electronics work. They just have them programmed that they automatically stop, and somehow there's something about electronics that they say that's different from pushing the button and making 
making a transit, you know, making a, a connection work. Now, I don't know it all. I don't understand it all, but they seem to make sense on it. Restaurants close down, but if your hotels or something are open, you, if there's an elevator someplace where you have to go, maybe you live in a high rise, you live on the, the 19th floor, they're not going to make you walk up because that would be worse to walk up 19 stories than to take your elevator that stops on every floor. On, on Saturday, nothing. Unless they go to Arab stores. Because right now the Arab stores can still open on Sabbath day. Uh, because they have not read Ezekiel and, their, and Nehemiah who said shut down the businesses on, on the Sabbath. I don't care whether they're Jewish or not. So they haven't quite got that far yet. Uh, during, during the reign of the Antichrist when there's peace and they get to start the temple, I can almost guarantee that they will probably follow that example and everything will shut down on, on the Sabbath day. But at this moment, there's some pressure on them not to, but they're not forced to, to shut down on Sabbath. Uh, if you're in a Jewish, Jewish, Jewish neighborhood, you're going to be shut down because nobody's going to come to you anyway. Uh, but if you're in the Arab corner or the Muslim corner, they don't shut those areas, areas down. Uh, because in Israel right now, they are a true democracy, very much in the way America was. They have religious freedom. They have... Uh, they have all kinds of different people in their, in their equivalent to the Congress. They have Muslims and Arabs and everybody in there that are elected into office. Uh, so they, they have a multiplicity. They have true freedom. It's the only place in the Middle East that has true freedom. Uh, very much like what we would call freedom. Freedom to worship, freedom to assemble, associate, um, and they're all the protections that go along with it. So that is Israel in this day. They're very pragmatic, and they're not following God as strong as they should. Um, so the king sends this man. He starts teaching them how they are to worship the God of the land. And it doesn't tell us much more than he teaches them how the manner of the God of the land. So he's going to teach them the Ten Commandments and all their rules and all the stuff. So this is how you're supposed to live. This is how you sacrifice. These are what you sacrifice because... They would have to be taught what to sacrifice, what they can and can't sacrifice. I don't know that he tells them that the only place they're to sacrifice is Jerusalem. We don't know. It doesn't tell us that much. Uh, but he gives them instructions on what God expects, probably to honor the Sabbath, stay closed on Sabbaths. He's going he's to be teaching them these rules from God. And how much of the 613 rules he's teaching them, I don't know. How, how deep he's going to go into this, I don't know. These people are motivated to follow the God of their people, so they may be asking for a lot of information. Uh, it's very interesting when you start teaching somebody who wants to know. It is so much fun because they just, I want more, I want more, I want more. Uh, to be able to, you know, then you teach people who are just there for the, for the sake of being there, and it's like, okay, you, you've, been, you've been talking for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, aren't you almost done? And then you got other ones like, all right, more, give me more. And I think these people were probably in that more. We want to know how to not have these lions bothering us. And how do we get rid of these lions? Tell us how to worship your God. And so I can almost imagine this is probably the easiest job the priest has ever had, to, to teach people who are motivated and want to learn. And, and then it says in verse 29, how be it 
every nation made gods of their own and put them in the house of the high places which the Samaritans had made. Every nation in their cities therein they, wherein they dwelt, the men of Babylon made Sokobinoth, and the men of Kuth made Nergal, and the men of Hirmath made Ashimah, and the Av- Avites made Nimhaz and Tartak, and the Sepharites burnt their children in the fire to Adramelech and Anamelech, and the gods of Sepher are the gods of Sepharim. So they feared the Lord and made unto themselves the lowest of them priests and the high of the high places which sacrificed for them in the houses in the high places. They feared the Lord and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence. Unto this day they do the form do the former manners, they fear not the Lord, neither do they after their statutes or after their ordinances or after the law and the commandment which the Lord commanded the children of Judah Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord made a covenant and charged them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow yourself down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice them to them. But the Lord God brought you up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a stretched out arm. Him shall you fear, and him shall you worship, and him shall you do sacrifices. All right. Verse 29 is a sad phrase. How be it? All right. This priest is brought down from wherever he was sent to. He teaches them how to worship the God of Israel. Now, the very first thing he's going to tell them is, there's no other gods before me. You shall not bow your, na- bow your knees. You shall not create any graven images. This is foreign to them. Most places, when you wanted to just have another god, you just added another god. All right? Because they're polytheistic. If one god is good, lots of gods are better. All right? Uh, so they're going, okay, we've got all our gods, and we've had a whole list of them here, and this guy's teaching us about the god of their land. We'll just worship our god, and we will add in this god. And that's exactly what they do, because we see they, they feared that god, and yet they didn't do what he said. This is, you know, we read about these things. We read the Roman mythology and about their pantheon of gods and how their gods are always battling each other and fighting each other because there is no great god in control of all from the beginning that is the supernatural you go to uh, the hindu god and there's only a thousand or some gods of in in hinduism all right Uh, you know it is very sad to see all of these nations and places that have multiple gods and add gods to it when Constantine made Christianity the official religion of Rome in 400 AD. All that happened were all these guys that were worshiping Saturn and Jupiter and Athena the day before. Well, if they weren't going to worship the approved god of the empire, they were going to lose their pay from the government. So immediately they just said, okay, we're not praying to Saturn anymore. We're praying to the god of the Christians. They did nothing different inside the temple. They still offered the sacrifices. They still, if it was Athena, they still had sexual activity going on in the temple, but they now worship the God of, of the Christians, supposedly. Out of that, that process came the Roman Catholic Church with all of the, the, the worship of the idols. And, the, and, the, and what they did was they took the pantheon and they just replaced the pantheon of gods that they were worshiping and put in 
the apostles and Mary and, and all these people in their place and added the gospel on top of it. And this is the problem they still have. There's enough gospel early on in Catholicism for somebody to get saved, but then they start getting in all the other <laughs> religions that are part of it. And I'm not t- you know, belittling, where, belittling them, but it is, their history is just like the Samaritans mixed up bag of religious traditions. They have the religion of Christianity with all the underpinnings of these other religions and it came from just that fact. One day you're serving one God, the next you're serving another God and they had no problem with it. You know, I was praying to Saturn, now I'm praying to, to uh, Jehovah. No big deal. I can. doesn't matter who I pray to. I'm just going to keep praying to the to this statue over here in the corner, I'm just changing the name of the statue. And that's all they did. And that influenced then into the, what became the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and there is Christianity in the Roman Catholic Church, but it has been watered down over the, over the, over the centuries because of all the mixed bag of, of religious activities that came into it. And uh, this is what's happening in Samaria. They're, teaching them this is how you worship God. And yet they don't turn completely over to God. They start doing their own thing. And it tells us that they each brought the gods of their nation into this, in this God. This God is more powerful than their gods. He's killing them with lions, but yet they're going to worship that God and their God. Again, the logic of this doesn't make sense to me. But you know, one of the things that I have learned is how really illogical human beings are. You know, you'll, you'll tell somebody, somebody will admit that what they're doing doesn't work and isn't getting them what they, want, what they want out of life, and yet they keep doing what doesn't work. And they might try to add something else into it to see if that might work with what they're doing. You know, um, and in today's world where they're teaching you there's no absolute truth, you'll have, two, you'll have people say two diametrically opposed opinions on a topic, and they'll tell you they're both true. I believe in life, but we might as well kill these babies that aren't wanted. And people will say just that kind of a statement. You know, kill the babies by abortion because they're not wanted, and it's better that they don't come in, but I really believe that life is important. As long as it's a life that I care about or want to care about. You know, but those two, no, no, those two concepts don't go together, and yet they're spoken in the same sentence. Uh, they will talk about global warming as we're freezing. You know, uh, as it's getting colder and colder, they'll talk about global warming. So what do they change it to? Climate change. Because, it, because they're starting to get some sense that uh, maybe we were wrong. Uh, but we get all the time people will say, diametrically opposed viewpoints and say they're both true. This is what they're doing here. Our gods weren't strong enough to keep the lions out of our midst and, keep, and keeping us from dying by lions, so we're going to worship the god of this land, but we're going to keep worshiping our god that was weak and couldn't do anything, but we'll, we'll worship this other god as well. And this is what they were doing, and they bring in all these different gods that we were talking about here. Um, they brought in Sacobanas, which is a goddess that was married to Meredek, it was worshipped through temple prostitution. So this is a fertility goddess that they're worshipping. 
Um, you have Nergal, which was a hero god. He was a Babylonian god of war. So he, is, he would be equivalent to Mars or Ares, depending on which of your Greek or, Greek or uh, Romans that you... But he's the god of war. So if you're going to war, he's the god that you would want to worship. Okay? Um, you've got Ashimoth. He's the god of fate. He controls the fates. Uh, you know, so if, you have, if your god is the god of fate, you're hoping that you're going to give them enough good so that you're going to get good, fate, good fortune on your side. Uh, but if you follow it, most of these gods of fate, you have no control over. They, they just do what they're going to do, and they're not influenced by people. So why you'd worship a god of fate, I have no idea, but that's what, that's what they do on here. Um, Tivahaz was a dog-headed man that they worshipped. Um, Tartak was the prince of darkness. He's close to Satan in that, in that area. Uh, Sepharim was a city that was close to the Euphrates, and they worshipped Amadrite, the sun god, and Amadon, the, the sun goddess. So these people were bringing in all kinds of gods and goddesses to worship, depending on who a big god of their, their nation was. Now remember, the northern kingdom, when they split off, immediately uh, the, the king said, well, I don't want them going to Jerusalem because they might decide we're going to come back together. So he initiated golden calf worship, and that was one that had always been there. And golden calf worship is associated with sun god worship. All right? Uh, so they've been worshiping a sun god all their, all their existence. And then add to that Baal, the god of, uh, god of power, and then Astoroth, which is a fertility goddess. They've been worshiping the wrong gods all this time, and these people are following the same path. They're going, okay, you wanted me to come and teach you how to please this god. Here is how you please him. And immediately they start trying to do what he wanted plus worship their gods. Now, we need to be careful because we tend to do the same thing in our, in, our, in our world. God says, this is what I expect from you. I'm giving you grace. I want you to have me dwelling in you. And we immediately do things like, how can I work to earn my salvation? What can I do to please God? Or, or even worse, we create a God, a God of pleasure. There are a lot of people whose God is pleasure. Most of them spend all their, all their evening in front of a television just, just enjoying life or getting into pornography or getting into activities that just bring pleasure to them. And they're worshiping a God of pleasure and then try to look good by worshiping God and reading the Bible and all these other things. We got people who are into power. Let me be the top of my business. Let me be the top of the world and I'll be happy. I'm still going to worship God, but when God and my power God come into to conflict... God, you're just going to have to take the back seat because I've got to get to the top of the company. And when I get to the top of the company, God, I'll let you have your place. God, when I've had enough pleasure, I'll let you have your place. You know, and we tend to do this as human beings. And it is really sad in how easy we make other things God in our life. And we need to be very careful about it. It is real easy for us to have something other than God be in the center of our life. And you, you know, one of the people have said many times, the pastor will say, if you want to know who God is in your life, look at your checkbook, look at your calendar. What do you spend all your time with? Where do you, where do you spend all your money? You know, some people spend all their money on their homes and their cars and their yards and, and don't give God anything. Well, what does that tell you? They've made a God of their home and their possessions. And God is secondary. 
Uh, we've got people who say to God, well, God, you know, I gave you, Sunday, I gave you that one hour on Sunday morning. Uh, the rest of my week is going to be, you know, I got to watch all my football games this week. I got to watch all the basketball. You know, at least with football, there's only, only about four days a week now that you watch football. You know, if you watch baseball or basketball or hockey, you, watch, you can watch it all week long. Every day of the night, there's some game going somewhere. So you're really in trouble. It's bad enough on football, you know, but uh, these other sports, you can watch all week long. And again, you raise it up to a God and say, this is what's important to me. I used to be a football fanatic. I watched all the games. That was before Thursday night games. I watched all the games on, on uh, Sunday and the game on Monday. You know, all of them, you know. Uh, now, I was smart enough to realize that God was more important than football because I, did, I, I have never watched a live Super Bowl game until about 10 years ago when the pastor canceled the service to, so that he could watch the Super Bowl. Uh, and so at that point, but I was so convicted watching the game when I knew that I should have been in a church that even though he canceled them for years thereafter, I'd never watched the game live because it just... It made no sense. There was a service. Now, if we didn't have a service, that would have been one thing. But to have canceled a service so you could watch, watch the football game. And, it, you know, he would swear that football wasn't his God. You know, and I'm going, uh, I disagree with you. You have God below your Super Bowl. You know, and, you know, and I'm not judging him. He's got to answer to God for that. It's his church and his, his responsibility. But it was one of those things that I just did not understand. I could not justify canceling. Now, like I said, if we hadn't, if there wasn't a night service, whatever is fine. It's not a big deal. I, you know, I don't want to cancel services for doing something else that is not, <laughs> not there. And this is very important. What is your God, and how easy it is to slip a God in in God's place, without even realizing it. You know, he justified what he did, and I understand. I've heard all the arguments that he used to, to justify it, and that's between him and God. You know, it's a one game only. It's once a year. It's the only, you know, it's not like the, the World Series where you can get, you know, five, you know, four out of the seven games and, not, you know, and all of that. I've heard all the arguments about it, but it's still, you're placing it above your, what you had scheduled for God. There's a problem. Yeah, there's a problem with taping it because inevitably, when you tape it, somebody somebody tells you the score before you get oh, to the yeah. before you get to watch it. it. I've tried that. Believe me, I did that for years. Yeah, you know, and if I didn't watch it that night after church, I was in trouble because somebody somewhere was going to tell me, "Oh, did you? You, know, you should have seen that last second field goal yeah. by so and so." You know, <laughs> yeah, and you, it totally ruined the game to know who was going to win. Uh, so, yeah, I, believe me, I taped them for years because I was a football addict. You know, so I taped them, and so I'd watch them, you know, after the game and hope that nobody told me anything about the game until I, and I, but my attitude was, God, I'm putting you first. As much as I loved, the, loved that game, and now God has actually kind of get, said, took football out of my life and basically said, do you want to spend three hours just watching a game or do you want to spend three hours with me? And it doesn't mean I never watch a game or never watch parts of a game, but I have no desire now to watch the game. So when I do watch it, it's just entertainment for a period of time, and I usually don't get caught up in the game at all uh, because God has said, I, I really truly place God even above the amount of idol it was <laughs> for me. Uh, but it's so easy. 
to have an idol slip into our life and never realize it. When I was in my 20s, I made an idol out of work. I was going to be the top of, the, top of that business, and I did very well. Kind of left God behind. I walked away from church for about two years because I was just too busy to go to church, too busy to read my Bible because I'm at work. I'm going to make it. I'm going to be the number one in the nation. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do everything I can to be number one. So I've had my problem with idols as well. <laughs> you know, and we all do. It's so easy for an idol to slip in and take over our place. For some people, it could be just family. Family can become an idol, where everything I do is based on getting my family and taking care of my family. Don't kid, we're not going to go to church because I've got to be with my family. We've got we to go camping on the weekends. We've got to do this. We've got to get them in their sports events. We've got to do this with them. And I get so busy with my family that God takes a back seat. And then I don't realize how much damage I'm doing to my family by making family my God. And I didn't, didn't make that one uh, as my mistake, but I've seen others that do that. So the question that we have to always put in, is it wrong? Is, is taking care of your family wrong? Absolutely not. We need to spend time with our family. We need to teach them about God. We need to raise them up. Is work good? Yes, work is good. We need the income. We need the, but if I, can't, I do not want to make a God out of it. Watching sports, there's nothing wrong with watching sports as long as God still is number one and we're giving God as much time or more than we give into our sports. So all these things are not, there's not necessarily anything wrong with them individually, but when they become more important to us than God, we've made them into an idol. They're not just part of our life. And that's what's going on here. These people are worshiping all their other gods and in verse 32 says something that's very strange and hard for me to understand. So they feared the Lord and made them to themselves the lowest of them priests in the high places which sacrificed them in the houses of the high places. There they feared the Lord and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they, whom they carried away from thence. So here we have them bringing in, they're not making priests out of the Levites. They're going to whoever is willing to be a priest. Um, probably lazy or power hungry or whatever, and they're going, we're going to do this and we're going to worship Jehovah and the place that we're always in trouble is if we decide we're going to worship God and because those ands will always press out God. Why? Well, because we have a God who's invisible. We cannot see God. All we have is his word on who he is, and we can feel him as a Christian, but we don't, it's easy for us to get lost. When we have something we see, it's very easy to fall in love with that, what we see. When we see bad things happening to, our, to us, it's easy to complain that, God, you don't know what's going on in my life. You've let my life fall apart. When we see things coming against us, it's real easy to say, God, you just don't understand. You, God, somehow you just don't understand what I'm going through. You know, and because we walk by sight more than by faith. And we all do. I do as well. You know, I'm going through things right now, and I'm going, God, I really need your help to help me get through this. Because there are things that are, that are smacking me upside the head and knocking me around. I'm going, God, I still trust in you, but you know, this is tough. This is tough. How, how are you going to get me out of, this, out of all of this uh, that's going on? That's the right attitude. 
But it is easy for us to say, okay, God, I'm seeing all these problems. You're not helping me. I'm going to go out and take care of them myself. And abandon God. And do whatever we think is going to be good. You know, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean on into your own understanding. And in all your ways acknowledge him. And he shall direct your path. The flip side of that is trusting in myself and trying to do what I want to fix the problems. The only problem is it doesn't work in the long run. Every time I try to fix my own problems, I end up making things worse. Mostly because God turns his face against us. If you're not trusting him and you're going to fix them all on yourself without trusting him, he'll say, fine. He turns his back away from us and says, okay, you fix it. I'm not giving you any blessings as you fix this. You go ahead and fix it. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to actively work against you as you're trying to do things your way. And it keeps getting worse and worse. And then we start panicking and we try to do it more our way and more, you know, we get a little crazier on our plans. And hopefully at some point we smack ourselves upside the head and said, oh, God said trust in him and turn it over to him. Uh, Hopefully we do that sooner than later. But usually it takes time to learn to do this. Uh, I have fought God for one time up for, up for six years. Fought God doing it my way. And boy, he made life miserable for six years as I tried to do it my way. And I'm a manager. I'm a controller. I made great plans. And believe me, I still to this day believe that I made great plans. But God said, I'm not letting your plans work. And everything would go wrong with all my great plans. Everything would go wrong with them. And I was like, okay, God. <laughs> and one point I finally said, God, I give up. You take care of the problem because I'm tired of this. You know how fast things turned around? It's amazing how fast things turn around when you surrender to God. People ask all the time, how do I get over a problem? And my answer is always the same thing, surrender. And they'll go, how do I surrender? You do it. You know, my example is if we're, we're in this room and the police were outside saying, come out with your hands up, we have, a, we have an option. We could be, you know, the gangsters, you know, to fight with them and stay in here until they blow us out with tear gas or, or dogs. Or we come out with our hands up and surrender. The thing about it is when you, once you finally surrender to God, at least in my case, I've been around kicking myself going, man, it was so simple. Why didn't I surrender a long time ago? And I was just like everybody, how do you surrender? How do I just give this up? You know, how do I do this? But when I finally did it, it's like, this was so simple. Why did I fight as long as I did rather than surrender? And it's been, my, been the case whether I take a day to surrender, a minute to surrender, weeks to surrender, years to surrender. Uh, when I finally surrendered, it's like, oh, God, you did have this. You had an answer for this the whole time. And you surrender, and the victory comes. Our victory in Christ comes through surrender to him. Gideon finally surrendered to God. He was fearful. He was afraid to attack the 170,000 Midianites with 300 men. We would be too. But he heard what God said and goes, okay, they're ours. We're going to win. Joshua, getting ready to go against uh, Jericho goes out in the wilderness and meets God, meets Jesus, says, I'm on your side. You know, here's, my, here, here's your battle plan. You're going to march around the city and do nothing but march around the city for seven days. You're not going to say anything. You're not going to do anything. Can you imagine how everybody's thinking they're crazy? His own army's thinking it's crazy. The people on the wall are going, 
You know, every morning they get up and here's these Israelites marching around the city. What is wrong with these guys? I thought they were going to war. Next morning, they march around the city. Can you imagine by the last week how many people were on that, on that wall? What are these crazy Israelites doing? They just march around this. And then that seventh day, they keep marching around the wall. One time, two times, three times, four times, five times, six times, seven times. I can almost imagine how many curious people were on that wall when God brought that wall down. Now, what are these crazy people doing? All they're doing is marching around the wall. How many of the people were on that wall that crashed down and died just by when God took down the wall? So they didn't have to kill a whole lot of people. All they had to do was march in and conquer what was left. God's ways are strange, and yet he will bring the victory when we obey. He'll bring the victory when we surrender. Here these people aren't surrendering. They're fearing God, supposedly, but they're adding their God to the mix, or adding him to their God's mix. And then he says uh, in verse 34, And unto this day they do after the former manner. They fear not the Lord, neither do they after their statutes, or after the ordinances, or after the laws and the commandment of the Lord, commanded the children of Israel, which he named, uh, Jacob, which he named Israel, with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, You shall fear no other gods, nor bow yourself down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. God's rules are real simple. You do not bow down to another god. All right? These guys kept some of the rules, but not all the rules, didn't follow all the statutes, and they bowed down to multiple gods. It appears, though, from the statement that God took the lions away. Because some remnant actually worshipped him. The power of the remnant of God is very powerful. There's always a remnant of followers. God always has a remnant. When, Jer uh, when Elijah was complaining, God, I'm the only one following you, and he goes, I've got 5,000 that haven't bent their knees. You just do what I told you to do. Uh, all through the dark ages, there was a remnant of Christians that held on to Christianity in spite of all the stuff that was going on in the, in the established church. All through time, God has had a remnant of followers to believe. During the tribulation period, you'll have a remnant of followers, 144,000 Jewish converts that will evangelize during the tribulation period, a remnant of believers. Always, always know that there are other followers. When you are tempted to believe that everybody else has fallen away except for me, do not believe that lie of Satan. God has a remnant. And he will guide you to the remnant if you need that strength and, and, courage, and encouragement. He'll guide you to the remnant to get it. As we're looking around our churches in, in America today, there are so many churches that are falling away from teaching the gospel message and are leading the charge toward the one world religion and being willing to sacrifice everything that God says. And yet there's a remnant of Christian churches out there. They're out there. You may have to look a little harder to find a good church in this day and age, but they are out there. They are still people who believe God's word and trust God. So don't ever believe that you are the only one. And they did not bow their knees to, to God only. And then he gives a little bit of the history, but the Lord who brought them out of the land of Egypt with great power stretched out his arm. Him shall you fear, and him shall you worship, and to him shall you do sacrifices. Sacrifices. 
the God who's all-powerful, the God that they were fearful. When he was repeating these statements so that they knew that this was that God, the God that had destroyed Egypt. You know, we think about this. That was a big deal, that God had destroyed Egypt. It's going to be the same thing as when America finally falls and people look and say, America was founded on Christian principles and now God took out that power. Egypt was never a good nation. They were taken out and God destroyed them. And people remembered that for hundreds and hundreds of years. Their God is the one that defeated all the gods of Egypt. That alone should have made people worship God. And yet, they did not worship the God that could destroy the entire nation of, Israel, uh, Egypt, of, of Egypt and all of their gods. They still did not follow them and, and bend their knee to him completely and him alone. Sad and easily understood. Verse 37, And the statutes and the ordinance and the law and the commandment which he wrote to you, you shall observe to do them forever, and you shall not fear other gods. And the covenant that I have made with you, you shall not forget, neither shall you fear other gods. But the Lord your God you shall fear, and he shall deliver you out of the hand of your enemies. Howbeit they did not hearken, but they did after their, own, their former manner. So these nations feared the Lord and served their graven images, both their children and their children's children, as did their fathers, so do they unto this day. He keeps going in and he says there's one thing, fear God. Bow down to God. Do not fear anything else. It is so critical in our day and age how many Christians fear you know, other things. In Peter we're told, cast all your cares or your fears on him for he cares for you. I have read every scripture on fear in the Bible and I am fully, absolutely convinced that fear of things is a sin. Because who should we fear? In the Bible, there's only one thing we're ever to fear, and that's to fear God. And if God is in charge of all things and in control of all things, and he is, I have nothing to fear about. He says, nothing will come my way unless he allows it. There hath no temptation overtaken you, but such is common to man, but God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape. Whatever comes my way, God allows. And if I truly believe that God allows it, then I can't fear it. You know, we are in the safest place that we can ever be as Christians. We are in God's hands. And those who aren't in God's hands are still in, in a safe place because nothing's going to happen to them that God doesn't allow. Before somebody comes saved, they can go back and look at all the places when they finally get saved, and they look back and see all the places where they should have died, where God's hand was on them, keeping them alive. They just didn't know it at the time. They might have recognized that they should have died or maybe possibly should have died without knowing why they didn't. But God has everybody in his hand. Now, he allows things to happen that we don't, we don't understand. Why do people die at early ages? Well, it's the sin. It's sin, but God allows certain people to die young. Some people 
Some people that are mean and nasty and never seeming to follow God die at an old age, and you're going, God, how come they, they lived? And this person that really loves you and, and loved you with all their heart died, died at 21. This person who hates you and, and makes life miserable for every Christian they come across, living to be 300. <laughs> you know, no wonder they're irritated and stuff. They live too long. But you, know, but you understand what I'm saying. These, the, sometimes you look and say, God, and God's saying, I want them to have plenty of opportunity to reject me. Plenty of opportunity to reject. You know, God is in control. If we truly trust him, then we go, God, I didn't, and sometimes my prayer is, God, I don't understand what's going on. I don't know how any of this can be for good, but you've promised it's going to be for good, so help me to understand. And I'm not saying it's easy sometimes. When, when your whole life is falling apart because God is testing you, you're playing Job for a few, for a few uh, weeks or months or years, and everything is going against you, it's sometimes very hard to say, God, I don't understand how any of this can be for good. But for me, I'm going to hold on to Romans 8.28. For all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I hold on to that verse in the middle of, it's the knot at the end of the rope that's hanging over the abyss that, that I'm hanging on to that little knot with, for everything I have saying, God, you've put me a promise, I'm going to hold on to this promise. Do I understand all the things that happen to me and all the times? Nope. And you know what? God never promised that, he would, that we would understand why some of these things happened. All he said is it will work together for good. And the most important thing, as I point out all the time, most of us want to add a word, a, a word to that, that verse, and we want to say all things work together for my good. My is not in that verse. It works out for good. And that is whatever God thinks is good. Not necessarily what I think is good. And it might be just so that we're a witness to the lost world or even to other Christians. Maybe we're going through a trial so somebody can look at us and say, wow, they're really faithful. God, I, I think I want, I want what they have. You just put them through hell and they didn't, they didn't reject you. They still, they're still coming to service. They're still talking about you. They're still reading their Bible. I sure wouldn't be talking about you if I went through what they did. For good. For God's good not necessarily our good. These people, where we had told them about the covenant. This is the God that can deliver you. This is the God that made a covenant with his people. This is the God that brings them, don't forget him, fear only him. And verse 40, another one of those, how be it. How be it, they did not hearken. They did not listen to this priest telling them how to live. And they just added God to their gods. And it says, So these nations feared the Lord and served their graven images, both their children and their children's children. And so they do to this day. They tried to worship God and. And again, my statement to us, when you try to say God and, you're in trouble. If I want to believe in God's grace and something, I'm in trouble. If I want to believe in Jesus and something else, I'm in trouble. God demands that we trust in him and him alone. And anytime I try to do an and on there, I'm, I'm, I'm going the wrong direction. So if you're in your own life, if you find yourself saying, okay, God, I know your grace is wonderful and I know Jesus saved me, but, or and, I need to do these, go back to the first statement and forget the second statement. <laughs> All right? Um, you know, 
God is always right. And if you forget that he's always right, refer back to God is always right. <laughs> and always remember that he is going to give you the right answer. He is the one that's right. You know, God, I know you say to do this, but if you really understood what I was going through, you would understand that this is what I need to do. As soon as you put that but in there, you're in trouble. God, I know that you, I'm supposed to give you my tithe, but, you know, I've got a lot of bills, God, and you'll understand you don't need my money anyway. Anytime you put a but, no matter what it is, you're going over. As soon as you put this, I know what you want, God, but, or God, I know I'm saved by grace, and you know I, know I need to do these other things, <laughs> you're in trouble. Do not add to what he's telling you to do. Accept what he says, believe it, even when it doesn't make any sense to you, because he is God. And many times, God does things that make no sense to us as human beings. Because he's God. And the one thing about God is, he is not just looking at tomorrow, or today, or even today, because most of us just look at today. But he's also not just looking at tomorrow, or next year, or a decade from now. He's looking at our entire life and saying, I know that this is what's best for you. I know that this is what's going to be best for you in heaven. The rewards that this will give you in heaven, I know that this is what's best for you. You may not understand it, you may not see it, but I know, God says. I know, and many times over time, when I've gotten a decade away from what happened to me, and all of a sudden I'm in a situation, I'm going, oh, I was prepared by that activity way back then. Way back then, when I went through this, God prepared me for this event, this day. And we didn't know what he was doing 30 years later, 10 years later, earlier. We didn't know that what he was going to do, but he knew. He knew what was needed. He knew what was going to guide us. So just be careful. It's not God and or God but. It's just God. Lord, we thank you for this evening. Lord, teach us to always put you number one and to, to listen to you and you only and to trust in you with all of our heart and lean not into our understandings and guide and teach us in all that we do. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to, get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.